The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! You there. Here. Take this. Take this. Go on. Take it. Boy, what what are you handing me, sir? I'm, I'm handing you all of the stuff. I, I just, I gotta get rid of this stuff, tiny British child. I Just take it. Take this oh, stuff. Well, I'll just take this and put it on my, uh, on my, my, my gipper here. Yeah. Gipper's a thing, right? I, I put it I'm on my sure. gipper here. Your boot. I'll, I'll put this in my hand. Put it right in your boot. And, and yeah, uh, just take this and here and this. Oh, it's kind of heavy. This one. It's sort of heavy. And this one. Yeah, I know it's really it's heavy. heavy. I gotta. I think I'm gonna clear everything. Oh god, he's he's down. He's down for the count. But I'm gonna still throw this one at him and this one. You just my take shin. that. In the, just take that in the lift. Get this stuff out of my apartment, little British child. I, w- I am on the floor though, and I am going to need an ambulance. Well, I can do that later. I'm still trying to get rid of all this stuff. I need to find more British children to give it to because tiny child, I I've gathered so much stuff and I need to get rid of it because I haven't had enough space in a long time. <laughs> I was waiting for it. I was waiting. I was counting the moments. <laughs> I just don't have enough space. <laughs> and he sticks the landing. Four stars. <laughs> And those stars are right up in space. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've continued our tradition of not being funny at all. So. <laughs> That's true. Welcome to the Third Men Podcast. This is a Jack White History Podcast. I'm your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. And I'm your other astro host, James Kaminsky. If you haven't guessed, this is our history podcast about Jack White and Jack White-related things, where we go over movies and music and television programs and appearances and bands and history. And we mm-hmm. uh, we also go over uh, just the concept, the general concept of space sometimes, Paul. <laughs> this is the second yeah, time sometimes. we're going over space in connection with Jack White. Yeah, there's a lot there. And for listeners to the show, you might remember, or you might not, episode 40 of the podcast, which was Jack White in Space, which we thought was going to be a one-off, and then, James, just so much space kept falling down upon you right. that we we just had to... It was as if space... You had incurred space's wrath. Y- yeah. Anyway, so, James, uh, this is going to be another all-interview special, is that right? Yes, that is correct. We have gathered a slew of guests, Paul, and three... We gathered three guests... A regular menagerie. We got three guests, David, Paul, and Kelly. We took a digital mic to access this mystery. You wrote this down. <laughs> you wrote that down. <laughs> <laughs> no. You wrote that down and recited it. <laughs> but before we right? get to all oh. of that, Paul... James, is there something we gotta stop a doing? We gotta stop a breaking down. We'll stop a breaking down. Stop 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 breaking down
breaking down. Stop breaking down. Please stop breaking down. Paul, do you want to tell the fine folks out there what Stop Breaking Down is? Well, James, Stop Breaking Down is a segment of the show where we get something wrong or overlook something and uh, our listeners write in to tell us what we missed. Because, hey, we're not infallible and we'd like to be as accurate as possible. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're trying our best to be like Vulcans. We try not to tell lies. I'm shoehorning in as much space as I can. I hope you guys appreciate no, no, this good. out there, out there in good. radio land. I do. At Blackjack Davey on Twitter has tweeted at us that we, we missed a little something in the uh, the Whorehound Tour episode. Yeah, so I... And look, full disclosure, I haven't listened to the episode in a little while, but I, I thought we said this. Apparently we didn't, but at BlackJackDavy or BlackJackDavy3 on Twitter says, you didn't mention the kills were opening for the Raconteurs on the Consolers of the Lonely Tour, and that's how the dead weather was born. So... I'm 1,000% sure we mentioned that Allison was singing Tour songs with Jack on that tour. Yes. Perhaps we glossed over the fact that it was the kills opening for them. However, if you would like to learn much more about this, you can do so in our episode 11, where, James, you went into it in great detail, the Whorehound episode, where we talked about the album and how the group got together. That's correct. So we did go into detail in episode 11, but uh, I'm sorry we didn't bring it up in the... In that last episode. That episode in question, by the way, episode 44, uh, Jack on Tour, Whorehound, where we detailed the Whorehound Tour, just for everybody out there. If you haven't listened, you should definitely go do that. Indeed. Go do that, and we'll stop breaking down. And thank you uh, to Blackjack Davey. So, Paul, now that we've cleared the docket, so to speak, and stopped breaking down what do you say we get to some interviews well james i would like to do one more thing before we do that of course and that would be to just very briefly give a uh, a shout out i know we normally give shout outs at the end of the show but i just like to shout out kent green uh for the wonderful note that he left us in our email it was a very sweet note and uh, we're just happy we can deliver these uh, podcasts to you, Kent, and very happy to have you as a listener. And I just wanted to make sure we made you feel appreciated, and we'll get to some more shout-outs at the end of the show. Yeah, thanks, Kent. And speaking of appreciation, I am very appreciative of all of the interviews, James, that you put together for this spectacular episode, and I'm dying to get in there. Uh, let's get into it. All right, Paul, so the, the first interview we have set up here for these fine folks is Paul Verhaeg. Ooh. He can be seen in the Third Man Records video where they launch the Icarus craft. He is one of the the members of the Icarus crew, so to speak, who helped put guidance systems on it, and he was the person who set it up with the parachute and did a number of things. So we're going to launch right into this interview. I can't wait. Blast off. Blast off. So I'd like to welcome our first guest today. Uh, we have Mr. Paul Verhaeg. How are you? Welcome to the show. Very good. Thank you. Well, I'm on the hot side here in Idaho. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show. We're, we're also in a hot box here in uh, Los Angeles where it is 104, and I had to turn the air conditioning off to reduce the sound, and oh, is it toasty in here. <laughs> Only about 101 here. 
Ah, we're in a race. But we'll see where we're at at the end. <laughs> it's downright brisk here at 94, so yeah. we did it. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. So we brought you here to talk a little bit about the Icarus Project and near space and space probes and really exciting stuff like that. Uh, we hear that you know a lot about it. <laughs> I, you know, I teach some of it, but also I've launched 172 high-altitude weather balloons into near space. So a little wow. bit of a background. Wow. My goodness. That is way more than we've launched. <laughs> uh, to be fair, we haven't launched any. But. So what, what got you started in working in near space? You know, so it started back in 1994 when I was at an amateur radio club meeting. A gentleman brought in a picture that showed the edge of the Earth show the curvature of the Earth and the blackness of space. And I wanted to know how he got a picture like that. And it involved digital radio, microcontrollers. It was a space program and just space. And it's like, you know, this, this is everything. And also GPS receivers. So it involved all four things I was interested in. So it kind of struck on all four cylinders of my interest. And I never looked back since. Wow. Well, that's a super interesting subject, and the curvature of the Earth has always fascinated me since I've seen it, too. Even on airplanes, seeing that is always mind-blowing. Sure, like that, there's the blackness of space also. Mm-hmm. It looks like something you took from In fact, there's been two times I've gone to Walmart to have them my pictures, and they asked me if I was an astronaut. <laughs> that's awesome. Again, I don't think we're ever confused with astronauts. Possibly someone panhandling perhaps is what i usually get confused <laughs> with the beard does it so what what exactly is near space it's it's not necessarily space obviously so i i hear it's like uh it it's like 99 percent of the atmosphere is is already passed and you have about one percent left is that is there anything to that that's true um so near space is between controlled airspace which is sixty thousand feet and the boundary of space which is three hundred twenty eight thousand feet so anything in between is near space Weather balloons can get mm-hmm. to about uh, 90 to 110,000 feet. So, say 100,000 feet, give or take. And at that altitude, 99% of the atmosphere is below you. And it's uh, 99% vacuum, only 1% of the atmospheric pressure around you that you would have at sea level. So, what, what part of the atmosphere would that be in? Yeah, that puts you in the middle of the stratosphere. Okay. So, the lowest level of the stratosphere, that's where we live in, that's where our weather is at. And then the layer above that's the stratosphere, and we're halfway through the stratosphere. I'm assuming it's an important part of study for places like NASA and that that sort of thing. You know, what's, what sort of benefits do we get from, from studying this area of space? Sure. So one thing is it's the, uh, the location of the ozone layer. So you can go up there and measure the ozone layer, and that's what's protecting us from ultraviolet radiation from the sun, prevents skin cancers and the uh, destruction of life on Earth by blocking that, that ultra, the ultraviolet from the sun. It's really critical for that. But NASA has a facility called the Columbia Scientific Balloon Facility in Palestine, Texas. And it's on the eastern half of Texas. And before they do rocket launches or satellite launches with payloads on rocket launches that are like $60 million or $120 million, They'll send these experiments up in a weather balloon and let them stay there for hours or even days and give them exposure for kind of this taste of test or this taste of space to see how well they're going to work. Interesting. So it's a good testing for in space. That's a location of the ozone layer. Um, so that's very important for those reasons, too. But also at that altitude, the horizon is 400 miles away. 
So you could do communications, line of sight communications, and reach places 400 miles away. Wow. I had also read online that it's optimal in the study of dark matter and black holes and things like that. Is there any truth to that, or or is that just correlation not being causation? (laughs) So the the one thing is that you're able to do experiments there that you can't do on the surface of the Earth. The atmosphere blocks a lot of radiation from space. Uh So if you can actually perform these experiments in near space, you can actually see and detect objects that you can detect from space, but it doesn't cost you as much. Oh, okay, cool. Things like telescopes could be sent up there, and that does allow you to study things like uh, black holes. Right. But you can do it in space, but you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars to do it in space. Of course, you get the longer exposure time, which is also important. But it's a way to test experiments, and you can actually do some of that science. You know, another, another issue is you can sample cosmic rays. And cosmic rays are blocked by the atmosphere, so we don't see them on the surface of the Earth. We see the secondary cosmic rays from space. Uh-huh. So those cosmic rays come from black holes and uh, other galaxies, uh, supernova explosions, things like that. And that's a way to actually, if you actually measure those cosmic rays, you can actually count and detect atoms from other stars or even other galaxies. Interesting. So what is our chances of becoming the Fantastic Four? <laughs> so um, the chances are you'll die from acute radiation poisoning first. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of pop culture, because that's where we are in or- what we are in orbit of, what is the area? Is, is near space the area of, this, of space that Hollywood uses to achieve zero G sometimes? I know they fly planes pretty high up, and there's something about the curvature that they use. Is that near space, or is that below that? That's still below near space. They're flying okay. in the troposphere. Yeah, they typically fly around thirty to 40,000 feet, uh-huh. which is you know half as high as we get on the weather balloons. Gotcha. Okay. And with the plane, you can get two or three minutes of weightlessness on those parabolic arcs that they fly. Wow. So they only get a most of the way to your space, but they're still within the atmosphere. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, that's cool. It gives you a sense of scale, just how high these balloons are flying up there. I mean, sort of half the distance, that seems crazy, crazy high. So that's really, really interesting. What sorts of stuff do you send up there typically? I know, obviously, you're sending up lots of instrumentation to, to collect data. And I know that on the specifically on the Icarus craft, which we'll get into in a minute, they had a thermal imaging camera, I believe. Is that correct? So you know, I started by taking things like pictures and video, just mm. to see whether weather station, so temperature, pressure, relative humidity, uh, light sensors, optical sensors, so I can measure the intensity of sunlight in the different parts of the, the, the visible spectrum that we can see, plus ultraviolet and infrared. Also Geiger counters, so Geiger counters allow me to measure customers by sending those out. But the, on the imaging side, uh, near-infrared cameras and thermal-infrared cameras. Now, near-infrared cameras sees just past the red, and there's something called the red edge. The red edge is where uh, chlorophyll, it's a boundary in between red and infrared, where chlorophyll reflects a lot of infrared, but no no red. Chlorophyll likes to absorb red light. So this, this region where you get really bright in the near-infrared portion of the spectrum, but you're not bright in the red portion. So you can detect uh, chlorophyll really well. So you can look down and see pictures of the ground and where they're really bright and where there's plants. And then, of course, the thermal infrared lets me see the temperatures. So I can take a picture of the ground and see that a river, for instance, is warmer than the land next to it. Or cities might be warmer than the grounds next to them. Or, or farm fields are cooler than the deserts next to them. So that's something I'm, something yeah. I'm just beginning to determine. Interesting. 
Huh. So uh, during the the Icarus project, you you met up with David Jankowski and the Satins program, which is students and teachers in near space. Uh, how did you how did you meet up with them? So just to go back to April of last year, I got a, an email message. A friend said you want to talk to me over over the phone. He's like, just send me an email. I don't know. Why. <laughs> yeah. I gave him a call. It was a, um, I guess, a secret mission that uh, <laughs> you had to accept it before you could get the rest of the information. Uh, but he asked if I would contact David about a special project they were running. Um, my friend thought that I could handle could handle this mission. So then I ended up calling up David, and he couldn't tell me much about it until I signed a non-disclosure agreement. Hmm. I never signed those. Gotcha. <laughs> he, Jack had everybody sign NDAs. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's one experience for me before. Uh, before this, I always launched uh, experiments for people, but there's no, no disclosure agreements. You, know, you just yeah. you just launch and you're fine. But I guess this being in the record industry, the entertainment industry, non-disclosure agreements are really important to them. Yeah, that's uh, it's all that showmanship, you know. It's that panache, you know, that <laughs> that curtain opening. Yeah, and I had a lot to learn in the process. So I learned a lot about that side of the industry while yeah. I find this payload for, or at least the, the, the balloon system to carry the payload up. Now, they had the, the phonograph player record open, just had already been designed by Kevin. He had done some testing. And then uh, David asked me to design the system to launch it, track it, and recover it again. So I spent the time doing that. Now, it also required that I go to the FAA. Uh, our payloads are typically 12 pounds maximum weight. And this, as you can imagine, exceeded that by a great deal. Yeah. So I had to design a system to, to launch this that I had never done before. I can't have the phonograph player and then get approval from the FAA to send this payload out. Wow. Was that difficult? Did they raise an eyebrow? No, or? not really. Um, it's just uh, going through all of the interested parties and making sure that you have their agreement or their approval for it. So it, it takes a couple of weeks to do. Uh, but you explain what you want to do and why. Uh, they're fine with it. They got to look at it, have a risk assessment. How much of a risk is there flying this payload? And they wrote it off, said, yeah, you're fine, but you're going to fly between these times, between these times. So we had to you know, follow their requirements. And we do that because we want to be good uh, neighbors in, in, in the atmosphere, right? We want to be able to share this resource with aircraft and everybody else who's flying. So we'll do our part so that we're not creating a problem for other legitimate users of the, of the airspace. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. How involved or how interested, would you say, was Third Man in the technical aspects of all of this and that side of things? Or did they kind of leave that to you know, the experts and focus on the entertainment side of it all? Or was it more of a, did you find them very curious about it? They were more interested in just the entertainment side. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they asked me to do the, the technical side of it. Uh, and they just wanted to get the record up, have it yeah. play, <laughs> and put the video back again. And what it took to actually get it down, they didn't know what they about. Um, I shared data with David on that kind of science data and whatnot I collected. And the interest is not that high for that aspect of the flight. The interest was primarily on sending the payload. Hmm. I see. Did you wind up using the data for other things, or was it more of like a? Was it? Did it turn out to be mutually advantageous for your own scientific curiosity? You know, it is. I, you know, I had not sent up the thermal imager before, so it was nice to go. We do that and see what would happen when we send cool. thermal imager. 
Um, all the data that I collect, I always put on my website, is freely available. Um, no, no disclosure agreements there. No disclosure agreements there. You just go to my website and look at all the data. That I, I happily share that. Mm. Do you want to give a quick plug to your website? Okay, so Nearsys, Nearsys, N-E-A-R-S-Y-S dot com. Nearsys.com. So it's cool. short for space system. Mm-hmm. Awesome. We'll check that out. There, if you want to see it, I'd like to invite people to take a look at it. And if they want to do a blue flight, I mean, you have to decide a blue flight for anybody else. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we'll get one up there. I have a neighbor I'm really curious about, so I might, I might ask you to send a balloon up and really just, if you could just target it over their house. Let me tell you, because I've been getting some shifty eyes, uh, and I'd really like to know what's happening. Well, there was one group that I did a, uh, I designed a payload for out of the UK, so out of out of England. Yeah. And it was a, a um, jewelry box. And the jewelry box opens up automatically on server. So this gentleman will put uh, requests for uh, to getting free engagement requests. We'll send them up on the balloon. They'll videotape this jewelry box, which then goes up to near space to get you there. Then the jewelry box opens up, and you see the request and the ring inside. Oh, well, that's very oh. sweet. My God. <laughs> that is uh, very targeted at people who are willing to watch it go into space on YouTube or something, too, I imagine. It's like, honey, don't well, worry. Watch yeah. for 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so what they do is they let the video down. Yeah. So then you, get just, okay. you just give the important part of it. Also, by the way, it's a fake name because you always have a risk of losing the payload. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want that one to wind up in some vineyard somewhere, you know, a big gold diamond ring. I had heard on the Icarus craft you had a redundancy for finding the payload too to make sure that you were able to retrieve it. That's right. So when I designed the payload, I hooked up two trackers to it. So this is what I do on all my balloon flights. There's always a chance that one of the trackers could go out. And by the way, these trackers are amateur radio. So you have to have an amateur radio license to do that. That's where the FCC falls in. But the trackers have GPS receivers, uh, TNCs, which are modems built for radios. Hmm. And they hmm. transmit their locations per minute. And they transmit lat long altitude. Uh, they also give you the time of day, when the, the direction they're going, the speed they're going. To so use that information to track the balloon, I always put two trackers on each of my balloons so if one goes out. The second one is there to prevent the loss of the Nice. Interesting. So if you were to accidentally forget to ask the FCC for permission for these trackers, would that make you a space pirate? Because I think it might. <laughs> so actually, uh, you don't need permission from the FCC to do this. Just follow the procedures they lay out. Okay. Now, if you didn't follow FAA procedures, then I think that would make you a new space pilot. Wow. <laughs> all right. Well, we, we all now have a new goal to aspire to. Thank you very much. <laughs> so what actually led to the, the launch location of being Marsing, Idaho? Okay, so when we're ready to do these balloon launches, we can actually predict where they're going to go based on weather and wind reports by the National Weather Service. And this data they produce about two weeks in advance, but it only gets accurate about a week before the launch. Mm. So we started looking at what the winds would do at high altitude, all the way up to 100,000 feet. And then we use software to predict where the balloon would land, depending on where we launched it, based on those winds and the time of the day. And now the problem with Idaho is it's very mountainous. A greater percentage of the surface area in Idaho is mountainous than in Colorado, for instance. There's a lot wow. of really bad places to land in Idaho. So we looked at the winds aloft, what the predictive flight looked like, and then said, well, if we don't land someplace where we don't get the balloon back, we've got to launch from, and we can name these locations, mm-hmm. along the 
turn out to be south of Marsing, Idaho, that we can launch from. And we know that we get the balloon to land someplace that we can retrieve it. Oh, cool. Did you guys predict that it would land in a vineyard of some variety? Didn't do that. We were predicting the deserts next to the vineyard, but the parachute was a little bit smaller than I expected. So the payload came down just a little bit faster. So we reached the kind of altitude we expected, but we came down just a little bit sooner, uh, based uh, just on the parachute being a little bit smaller. And then landed, it was perfect. We landed between the rows in the vineyard. So not a single vineyard, not a single grape was damaged on the plant. Right down the middle. <laughs> not a single <laughs> grape. That's the full quote of this interview, I think. So when, when you guys got there, was it surrounded by a lot of farmers with their hats off, scratching their heads and phoning the local tabloids? Or what, what happened there? Well, what was interesting about that landing is that there was one farm worker about uh, two or 300 feet away from it. Oh, wow. Yeah, nobody else was there. And when it landed, our last position report was about a thousand feet or so off the ground. We were far enough away, and this radio is line of sight. And there's hills between us and, and the landing site, so we knew it came down in this area, but not exactly where. Now, I do my launches and chases. I will usually bring my wife to help me do tracking. Uh-huh. So I'm driving. She's monitoring the tracking equipment. We drive up to this work, farm worker and ask him, you know, have you seen this parachute thing coming down? He didn't, uh, but he gave us permission to sh- check the area. And I'm ready to drive out. My wife tells me to stop. She's got a position report. And it turned out to be literally 100 feet from the car. <laughs> we drove right past it, looked down the road, and there's this parachute, and there's the, the payload just waiting there. Wow. The farm workers worked on equipment and did not look up at the time this thing came down. So it literally landed just a couple hundred feet away from it. Wow. It just kind of shows you that people usually don't look up. And if you look at it's a strange object in, in gold mylar, and a parachute, an antenna parachuting down in, in your vineyard. Was that the closest call you've ever had? Or have there been any unfortunate accidents you may or may not be able to tell us about? <laughs> well, uh, uh, the closest happened in Kansas, and we landed in a tree, and it slid down the side of a tree. And then uh, we go track it, and we found out the position report kept changing. Every minute it was closer to the road. It turned out it landed to the homeowner, and it missed him by about 10 feet or so. Whoa. Landing the tree behind him and it's kind of the audio beacon, so it's beeping. So he picked it up and he was taken to the sheriff's office. <laughs> wow, uh, man. Have you ever thought about making a, a mock-up of Superman's <laughs> payload and having that land in a field in, in Idaho? I haven't thought of that, but one thing I have done is taken a Mr. Potato Head and I put a pair of camouflage parachute on him. We carried him up to 50,000 feet, and we let him parachute over Kansas, a skydive into Kansas. Just for giggles? What did you do that one for? <laughs> that one was actually found by a farmer, and he turned it over to the local sheriff's office. Phone number was on the potato head. So the sheriff called me or emailed me and asked what was going on. I explained that this was uh, a stunt we did. Uh, so they returned the face and gave me a picture of Mr. Potato Head getting his breathalyzer test, getting his mug ah. shot. <laughs> they charged him with trespass. I love everything about what you just said. All of that is amazing to me. You could have just blamed it on Disney, said it was viral marketing for the new Toy Story film. It yeah, would have been there, fine. There you go. Um, I like to do is send up a, a bag of potato chips. And if you've ever gone into the mountains for potato yeah, chips, you yeah. know the bag and it's because yeah. it, as the air pressure around drops and the bag is sealed. Yeah. So we strip the top seal so it can't burst on the top of the bottom one breaks at about 16,000 feet. So we'll rain potato chips below us. And I call that an Idaho cluster. <laughs> 
Yes. Oh, that's awesome. We approve yeah. of this. So real quick, I only have a couple more questions. Before you launched the probe, I had heard that it needed to be perfect conditions, weather and approvals and permissions and all that. Was there like a scramble, like a mad scramble to, to get it out that morning on July 2nd? So the only scramble really was getting the uh, capsule finished up. They showed up on Thursday and had to finish up the outer structure of the Phonograph player. So they got that done on Friday night. So David can tell you more about that. It was a late Friday night for them. But then we showed up on Saturday morning. We had the plan laid out. We followed the procedures, started in plenty of time, and got the balloon launched from when we were supposed to. Oh, cool. Oh, great. Do you think Third Man was satisfied with the launch? Do you think, were they were they happy about how it all went through? Do you think they, they walked away happy customers? <laughs> I get the question to a happy customer. You know, they, they got it up to the altitudes they wanted. They got the video they wanted. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they got it recovered where they wanted to. And they only had to launch it once. It didn't cost them that much money. So I, I think they were happy, happy clients. Cool, cool. That's good. So my last question is, I know involved in this launch and in the inspiration for this launch was Carl Sagan and the Voyager probes and the the music that was you know put on the Voyager Golden Record. Do you have any any memories or inspiration from Mr. Sagan, or was that ever a factor in your life? I enjoyed watching Cosmos back in the fall of 1980, and I've always loved the work that Carl Sagan's done. He has a very poetic way of expressing and, and explaining the, the universe around us. It helps give you that deep connection between us and the stars. Yeah. And as Carl Sagan says, you know, the reality is that we are more tightly connected to the stars and astrology would have you believe. The desire to be connected with the cosmos reflects a profound reality. For we are connected, not in the trivial ways that the pseudoscience of astrology promises, but in the deepest ways. I actually saw stuff. Everything in my body, heavier than hydrogen, came from stars that lived billions of years before me. That's a it's a beautiful statement and a statement of comfort. Actually, it's it's a, not often you get a lot of those from science, but it's usually a statement <laughs> of how badly we're screwing up our planet. But th- that one's all right. I like that one. So, what better of an ending to add this interview on? Is there anything before we go that you want to plug? We'll throw another plug in there for your website, which is nearsys.com. That's right. Yes, nearsys.com. In so November, Echo Alpha Romeo Sierra Yankee Sierra.com. I have a Twitter account also. It's at Nearsys. And of course, my blog is, is nearsys.blogspot.com. And I talk about some of the amateur science stuff that I do. In fact, some of the gardening stuff I do to have some gardening stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. And you're making it rain potato chips and all that stuff. Oh, man. <laughs> As an avid gardener, I, I feel like I have lots more questions all of a sudden. I'm like, I would God. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. We, we really appreciate it. I know it was a little struggle getting it all together, but we really appreciate your patience and, and coming on the show. It was, it was great having you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Paul. Bye-bye. Thank you. Back to the show. James, that was a lovely interview. It was great talking to Paul. And we had uh, we had a blast doing that. And he was very kind, gracious with his time. And it was uh, lovely chatting. Yeah. How about those potato chip bombs that he's creating? He should be on a watch list is all we're saying. We're not we're not saying which one, but one of them. The Uts um, It could be yours. <laughs> yeah, the Uts watch. But James, that Paul wasn't the only one we spoke to. No. Was no, it? Paul. We also had a chance to speak with another Icarus Craft collaborator, corroborator, watch list affiliate, Lay's enthusiast. <laughs> we got to speak with David Jankowski, Ooh. who 
was one of the third man team who helped Kevin Carrico to uh, properly prepare the Icarus craft and launch the Icarus craft. Drove 2,000 miles all the way f- from Nashville to Idaho to launch this thing. We spoke to David and uh, he had some some really interesting stories. So shall we get into this interview? Let's get into it, James. We'd like to welcome our uh, our next third man for, for this week, uh, David Jankowski. How's it going, David? Yeah, it's going great. How are you? I'm doing just fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So for those out there who don't know, David was partly responsible for the Icarus craft, for its launch, for it actually being created. I know you worked with Kevin Carrico on, on getting it all right. engineered correctly, and Paul Verhaeg helped as well, whom we talked to earlier. So it's amazing to have you on. You you had worked with a group called Satins, Students and Teachers in Near Space. Right. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you got involved with Satins? I was working with a company out in Barcelona, Spain, and they wanted me to help develop a project for them that worked with education. So when I designed this program, which is called SAM, Students and Teachers in Their Space, anyway, long short, uh, I got a call from a guy named Gary Vance, who works or runs a company called Red Mountain SA, and he asked if I wanted to work on this project for Jack White Good Man Records in 20 the first final record in space and I thought it was it was the most unique project that I have heard about mm-hmm. and uh, that ever came to my attention and I really wanted to sign on and be a part of it so I signed on to the project about three and a half years before we actually launched it in Marzen. Wow. Yeah, and it was definitely worth the uh, time that was spent. You know, it's, a, it's the kind of project where, you know, there's there's a lot of do-it-yourself launch teams that, that do their own experiments and stuff. But the one thing that I really liked about the third man record approach to this project is it wasn't just, hey, let's launch this record into space, that'd be cool. It, it was actually a well thought out concept and it was taken extremely seriously. Mm-hmm. They really put a lot of thought and effort and time into making this project something that was really great. You know, hearing how the record played while it was up in altitude, uh, that was one of the things that Jack White personally wanted to yeah third man records is is notorious for taking time even if something sounds kind of gimmicky at first or or even silly they, they they're notorious for taking the time to do it as correctly and as professionally as they can and learning to understand whatever they're trying to do which is something we me and paul and a lot of the fans have come to to kind of expect from from third man records is is that kind of professionalism yeah they do a lot of talking about inspiring people and using these kinds of stunts to create the next crop of creative people which you know i appreciate who are your main points of contact over at third man or did you have much contact with them during the process the main person that I worked with at Third Man Records was Kevin Carrico. Mm-hmm. You know, he and I, for three and a half years, we, we pretty much talked on the phone on a weekly basis. <laughs> uh, sometimes, sometimes for hours at a time. We actually still talk here now and then. And Kevin is, uh, he's a great guy, he's an amazing guy. He's pretty brilliant, although he won't admit it. Kevin really does come from a background of some pretty talented 
smart people. You know, his father. Uh, I don't know if you're planning on talking to Kevin or not, but yeah, his his father comes from the NASA background. Yeah, I think he helped with the Viking missions. With the Viking missions, and, you know. So yeah, well, Kevin did a really really good job at actually building Icarus. I mean, as far as my help on building Icarus, it was more of. Uh, what can be expected for the vehicle, its intended mark. What is the weather going to be like? And, you know, the temperature and things like that. You know, when you get up to altitude at those at those heights, you're you're really looking at exactly what you could expect if you were standing on the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so it, it was things like that that you look in and uh, use that information to help design Icarus in the best way that it could. And it obviously was built to perfection because it worked on the first try. <laughs> yeah, and amazingly so, too. The record was still spinning when it landed. I didn't need to see the video. I didn't need to see anything else. I needed to get to the crash, turn it over, and I needed to see the record spinning. If I saw that, I knew the mission was a success. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Now, leading up to this, did you do any other near space testing, or did you have any like setups to test? Like, how how would you know how vinyl would react in that atmosphere? Well, that's kind of where Gary Lance comes in. Uh, yeah, and even before I signed on to the project, Gary Lance was asked to help research the uh, thermodynamics of the record itself. And the records had provided him with a gold-plated vinyl record exactly like the one we would be flying. And they had a total of six of them. Buzz Aldrin has one. I believe we know the best. Tyson has one. I don't have one just on it out there. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's, there's about six, and the six one we flew. And so, yeah, he basically went through a series of tests basically to see what the temperatures and, uh, you know, exposing it to uh, the uh, high temperatures or the cold temperatures and to see how it would react. And the thermal tests came back very positive, and we were pretty confident that once it uh, reached altitude, as long as the record kept spinning, we figured we were going to catch the right right image, the right look uh, that that Beck wanted from the cameras, and, and we did. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was all down to the uh, mechanics, really. Was the record itself gold-plated, or was it gold that was etched? It's a gold-plated vinyl record. Okay, because I was going to say, a, a solid gold record would would seem a, a little heavy to send into space, <laughs> or at least near space. Yeah, but, um, I mean, wasn't one of the main criteria that it be vinyl specifically, so I suppose that's a way around that, right, to protect it in a way? Right, yeah, it, yeah you know, one of the main reasons why it was, it was a plate of gold, not the main reason, but one of the reasons why is because you you have less than 1% atmosphere, or about 1% atmosphere. So the exposure to the sun is going to be high. And one one of the things we were worried about was looking at you know looking at the record from the extreme heat, uh, the uh, extreme cold, and the sunlight. So we were kind of worried about that. And gold helps reflect the, the uh, sunlight from uh, right. the heat so, so that's the main reason why it was quite gold. The why is because it was the product itself. Voyager records, the gold records that are uh, on the Voyager one and two probes, and right. you know, we need to look cool. Yeah, it's sort yeah. of yeah. 
it's sort of an exaggerated version of the fact that out here in Los Angeles, you can't actually go record shopping on an exceptionally hot day without the risk of the record melting in the car on the ride home. <laughs> yeah. So, in regards to working with Kevin and, and Satins and all that, is this is this the first time you, you've done launches like this or, or had you had a lot of experience? It's the doing? first time I've done a launch like that. Yeah. yeah. You know, these these launches that this industry does, but I'm talking about the uh, balloon industry now. Not the commercial rocket industry, but the, the launches that are that take place in the balloon industry. You know, these are never really publicized. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody really ever knows about any of the projects that these people do on a regular basis. And Paul will probably told you he, he's done 160 some odd flights. And he's, he's run various types of experiments on his flight. And, and if you look at the video of the Icarus launch itself, you'll see a box angling from underneath Icarus. And that's actually an experiment of Paul's. Yeah. So you know, actually two experiments working on that flight at the same time. And Paul probably went into a little bit of detail on that uh, with you guys. Yeah, on thermal imaging. Thermal imaging, right. Yeah. So the guys in this industry who... who you know, do things like that on a regular basis, don't really get the exposure that a launch like this has done. And, you know, it's obviously due to who was involved in this project. Right. But yeah, it was it was something I was, uh, still am proud of my name too so yeah it's a really it's a cool project and you know it's something that we were really fascinated by when when it was announced and and to to hear that it was in the works for so long and then to to be achieved in such success is just really really cool it definitely was unique I mean I've seen videos where other well-known musicians have actually did their own launch and there was one in particular I won't mention anybody's name but they launched a cassette player I believe it was up on a balloon and it was their own music and you know any any musician could have done that mm. yeah it was meatloaf wasn't it i always suspected meatloaf was trying to blast something up there what i really really liked and admired about Birdman records and jack white's approach to this is he didn't want it to be about him yeah he, he didn't he didn't want to send up a record that had his music on it. He didn't want it to be about Jack White or the White Stripes or anything like that. He, he wanted it to be about science. And, and he wanted to use this opportunity to pay tribute to Carl Sagan, who obviously influenced him yeah. uh, a lot and uh, has influenced millions of people uh, around the world with, with the work that he's done. And this was a great way to, to pay tribute to, you know, to someone such as him. It- Definitely was, and I know I've been influenced by Carl Sagan a fair amount by by watching the original Cosmos series when I was little. And right. did you have any uh, experience or any any kind of inspiration from him? Or I remember watching Cosmos when it would come on the air, and Carl Sagan just he had a way of of explaining things to you. You know, he wasn't talking at you; he was. He was talking to you, but he, he was, I don't know, and I, I don't really know how to explain it, but he, he made it sound more, like you were less stupid, mm-hmm. uh, put it that way. But he didn't talk down, he didn't talk down to you. You know, he just had a way of explaining things that just made it easier to understand, and made it more exciting and more interesting, and as a kid, I kind of gravitated toward that, I, you know, I wanted to know what was out there and what existed, you know, what could be 
found if you you know further and further you look into space and you know our, at the time we didn't know about how many other possible planets there could be or would be and it's exciting now with with technology that we have mm-hmm. you know with all the planets that we've been finding I mean, we've been finding planets like yeah. crazy we will i believe in the next decade or two have made a very serious and thorough search for planets around nearby stars sufficient to tell whether they're there or not. If, as we think they are there, we will have then extended the Copernican perspective and discovered that planets are a frequent, if not invariable, accompaniment of stars. You know, so yeah, Carl Sagan was kind of the first person to really bring that out to the public and explain it in a way that people could easily understand it and uh, appreciate and you know Neil deGrasse Tyson he was kind of taken under the wing of Carl Sagan uh, yeah of Carl Sagan right. I believe when Neil deGrasse Tyson was I forget how old he was he was a young teenager at the time yeah yeah so it's really great to listen to Neil as well because he kind of explains things to you in, in a similar fashion as Carl Sagan does today we have a much better picture of our galaxy And Jeff Marcy estimates that of the several hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, about 5% have small, rocky planets that might harbor life. If he's right, that could mean 10 billion Earth-like planets. Yeah, he's got that personal wow. touch to it that I think he's sort of carrying the... I would love to talk to Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> the best explanation I, I saw from him was on the new cosmos, and it was a wonderful explanation where he's explaining the difference between climate and weather, where he has this winding path heading in a certain direction, and he's saying, okay, the winds in the path, the ups and downs, that's weather, but the direction of the path is climate. And it was the most simple, elegant way to put that and I know he's not yeah. operating in a vacuum, but it was just, it was so nice to see that on television screens for, you know, yeah. people out there shouting that global warming is not real because it's cold where they live. You know, it was just a wonderful little elegant way of putting it that I, I think we're all very grateful for Neil deGrasse Tyson's input into the public consciousness at the moment. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So obviously this isn't the, the first time you've encountered dealing with, with near space things. Was this the first time you had encountered Third Man Records or... Jack White's music? Had you had you listened to anything before? No. Well, <laughs> this I mean, I I can drive from the East Coast to the West Coast without ever the radio on. <laughs> I'm one of those people who can just spend all those thousands of miles just thinking of stuff. Are you performing calculations in your head? <laughs> uh, you know, it's actually it's kind of fun because. Uh, during my trip to uh, Idaho, it was a 2000 drive. I actually drove uh, some of the stuff that we needed for the launch, and I drove from Nashville to Idaho, and it was a 2000 mile trip. And I had gotten a call from my mother. You know, even though I'm 49 years old right now, she, you know, your, your parents will still worry, and they'll still call to see your friends. They called and asked me what I was doing. And it was like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and she was like, I says, oh, strategizing. She said, are you listen to the radio or keep you awake? You know. She was like, what do you do when you're still strategizing? I said, I start over. <laughs> you know, but that's, that's exactly what I do. You'd do really well in like solitary confinement if you ever killed a man and they put you in solitary. Like, you'd get in there and just like figure some out, you know. I would be fine. 
I would be fine on a long journey to Mars. I wouldn't have a problem at all. <laughs> okay. Now, were you one of the people that offered to go on the, the first manned mission to Mars? There was that... You mean for uh, Elon Musk? Yeah, there was that competition to get, like, a uh, 100 people to sign up. Yeah, but you have to be okay I yeah, do you have a do you have a death wish? That's what we're asking. Yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> really? I mean, chances of dying getting to Mars, yeah, I'm high, but you'd have a better chance of dying once you're on Mars. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns in there, but yeah, exactly. But yeah, I would go with Murphy. Why not? But uh, to get back to your original question, you know, had I known about Jeff White before this project? No, I didn't. Mm-hmm. It was actually, it's kind of funny. I'd gotten a call from Gary Lamps, who's, again, you know, doing the thermodynamics on the, uh, on the record. And I, I was talking to him on my driveway for about an hour or so about this project. And he says, he says yeah, there's this, this guy named Jack White. And uh, he has a bottom of him, and, you know, white stripes or whatnot. I said, I said, no. I said, well, he has a website. I'm thinking, oh, it's one of those musicians. <laughs> That's great. But, you know, I decided to say yes on the project anyway before I knew really what it was about because mm. it just sounded as though you know if I didn't say yes I was going to regret it so uh girlfriend that I was living with at the time went out with a phone call she said uh, who are you talking to I said I don't know some guy named Jack White you know <laughs> <laughs> so I told him, the record in the space and her jaw just dropped right open. I'm like, oh, time to Google <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I spent the next three hours learning about Jack White. And I was like, whoa, I just stepped into something interesting. Yeah. <laughs> He's definitely got quite a fan following. Obviously, we're we're making a podcast about him. So he's he still has quite a following. But this project brought that actually back into people's memories and they would read the articles saying you know jack white launched something into space yeah it it definitely uh reinvigorated a lot of people and and uh had people talking about it you know i had people coming up to me going like did you know your boy jack white is is launching something into space he's launching guitars or something i don't know (laughs) yeah well okay i would love to put jack white in space (laughs) <laughs> that's on the record I would love to give him an opportunity to, to do the first concert in space I think he would jump at that opportunity you know putting a live person up in space as opposed to a vinyl record that, that's you know, yeah. the logistics are a little different right yeah you're not, you're not only worrying about the thermodynamics of vinyl you know you're worried about the thermodynamics of the living human and keeping that living human alive yeah I mean, he'd be the one to do it though he'd be the first I'm sure the insurance alone would be staggering. Oh, you know, that, that's the thing with this industry. The regulations for insurance, they, they don't know how to best deal with, with the general public. I mean, like with any transportation industry, the commercial space tourism industry is eventually going to deal with its own set of tragedies. In a way, it already has with Virgin Galactic. With the uh, the accident they had some time ago, right? Like with any industry, there is going to be tragedies, and nobody really knows what the outcome of that is going to be. With with the shuttle Columbia, NASA stopped flying for a few years. What's going to happen with the commercial space transport industry? I mean, if you're if, if you are a over today, and something happens to a spacecraft tomorrow. Are you going to still hold on to your ticket or, you know, are you going to want to try to get your money back? Right. That actually brings me to a subject that I actually read in your bio is that you had designed something called Sinner Space, which has to do with space tourism. Yeah, when I started researching 
the commercial space tourism industry and NASA itself, I decided to go as far back in research as I could. So I literally started at the beginning, and I went back 40 years of NASA. I mean, I had night where my kids were waking up on my garage floor, <laughs> and I, I, I would be passed out on top of all these printed files that I had, and I mean, I had thousands and thousands of pages of research that I was going through, not really knowing what I was looking for, but I knew there was something that I was going to find that, that was important for commercial space tourism. So I did about a good four or five research, and what I came up with was the concept for center space, which was basically a theme park type facility where I found a way to shrink the entire solar system down, everything inside our solar system, I was able to shrink it down into a five-individual domes that were 1,000 feet in diameter and 500 feet high at its center. Mm -hmm. And so just imagine a mile a space that's, that's a mile, 500 feet high. 500 feet will give you a piece of building. So there's a lot of space in that thing. So, I decided uh, that the concert was going to have a major spaceport inside. I was going to operate like a major international airport except these spaceships. All the spaceships would be the companies that were at the time currently developing near spacecraft, and they would be theme park rides of their concepts. Mm. In my paper, I had the facility located in Vegas, where else? At the time, there was like 30 to 40 million people a year going to Vegas. But, you know, you'd be able to go to, let's say, dinner at a Starbase restaurant, or you can go gambling on the moon, or you can go to Mars and visit one of their spots and just have a nice retreat, or whatever you want to do. Restaurants, casinos, everything. And I threw the paper out not knowing what to expect. And three weeks after I put it out, I got an email from a guy named John Spencer, who is on theme parks, is a space futurist, and he was one of the architects that designed the interior module, uh, the, the Destiny Space Module that's connected to the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. So I got an email from him, and uh, I wish I still had it, but I'll never forget how it started. It basically said, Buzz Aldrin, a friend of 20 years, he said, I contact you. Hmm. And so Buzz Aldrin apparently got a hold of my paper, read it, liked it, passed it around. Wow, that's really and, cool. Uh, and since then, I've worked on other projects. I've, I've worked on uh, development projects with John Spencer. Uh, at the time, he was working on his own theme-style facility, which was on Mars. And we had worked for a little bit on that. But you know, the thing about this industry is it all takes funding, and we don't have the luxury of funding everything, every product we're going to work on. It's either got to be investments, yeah, well, where the money comes from. And you can have one section sponsored by Third Man Records. <laughs> yeah. You know how uh, Disney has a an energy thing at Epcot, and it's an energy ride that's presented by Ellen DeGeneres and Bill Nye. Well, I look forward to the day when I could go to a theme park that has this near uh, space theme to it, and and Jack White is is the host with Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> and, uh, I, that would be cool. Uh, you know, I mean, that would be great. 
the whole concept for sinners, uh, for sinners is, is based on giving the general public an opportunity to meet with these spacecraft developers and and learn about these companies and, and vice versa. These companies to learn about what the public is really interested in and what their needs are that could maybe help shape and engineer their spacecrafts a little bit better. It was uh, it was really idea. It's just an expensive one. Yeah, but what what a better way to to end this interview than a a theme park based <laughs> version of, of Disney? I can't wait to to visit it when it's a reality. I hope you are able to acquire funding to make this happen because it is super exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're actually planning on doing a main launch this August for the eclipse that's coming through. And uh, our goal was to send three of us uh, up into your space. I'm still what I was working on designing with Kevin Winter, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. And, and he and I talked for a little bit and, and about some of the things that I wanted to see on this vehicle. And he designed some pretty cool stuff. Actually, it's, it's on my website. If you look on my website, you see that video of, of the uh, six-sided spacecraft. That's a good If people want to go check out your website, where where do they go? www.satinsprogram.com. S-A-T-I-N-S. Cool. It's not S-A-T-A-N-S. It's the other guy. It was going to be a really cool spacecraft that we're still working on. It's just things went by so fast. We actually got into it later than we should have a program like this with the proper testing and finances that we needed. We should have got into it a lot sooner. But I kind of had my head wrapped around third main record stuff, so I wasn't focused on anything else. Mm -hmm. It wasn't only until a couple months after the TMR launch that I started looking for other alternatives and opportunities. And we did have an opportunity uh, as a result of the exposure that third man records got for us. We were contacted by a, a PR company in London, and they wanted to work with us to um, pretend to make contact with aliens hmm. for the movie Arrival. Oh, oh nice. Uh, that had come out, and uh, I thought that was really exciting. And unfortunately, it, it was an idea that was birthed by the PR company, and after I signed, signed on to do it, they pitched it to Sony, who decided it didn't fit with the scope of the movies, but I think it would have been a really cool PR project to do. Well, you could still launch some octopus into weather balloons yeah. and, and call it PR for arrival, but they exactly. might not like that so much. Yeah, really all you need is a real solid trebuchet and just an octopus <laughs> with a similar death wish to those Mars astronauts. <laughs> Well, you know, we are open to doing any type of PR stunts that any of your viewers might find interesting to do or want to try. Yeah, totally. So if anybody out there wants to check that out or, or inquire, would they find that on the Satin's website as well? Yeah, or they just uh, they can email me directly. The, all my contact information is on the site. Uh, they can email or call, you know, have some fun making history yeah and on that note thank you so much for coming on the show we, we really appreciate it and i learned a lot so thank you so much we, we really appreciate it thanks david yeah, thank you. Yeah, pleasure talking to you guys all right and we'll get back to the show 
another stellar interview. Great talking to David. I would love to play in that man's astrological theme park. I think astrological theme park would imply it's about, like, astrology. It's not about that. But I would also play in an astrological theme park that he wanted to do. Yeah. I want to be an astronaut in his astrological and possibly astronomical... Astrophysical? ...theme park. You have to enter through a Chekhov's ear-sized plastic mold of Neil deGrasse Tyson's (laughs) mustache to to actually enter the theme park. put creatures in Mr. Tyson. Enter through the ears and wrap themselves around the cerebral cortex. Made him do things. Go on, Cosmos. <laughs> and Paul, the interviews don't stop here. They don't oh. stop here. Who else we got, Paul? They're, we're spinning in an orbit around this topic. <laughs> the shock shift in the orbit. And the next one we're talking to is our third person in spirit every week, and in this case the actual one Callie Durga yeah who was at the Icarus launch party in Detroit Callie why do you go to everything it's true you make me feel like I don't go to anything it's cause we don't <laughs> let's get into this interview James yeah So we'd like to welcome our third woman this week the incredible Callie Durga how are you, Callie you're back I'm doing good. How are you guys? We're good. We're good. You've um, broken the record. You're the most third-person segments on the show, and uh, we have a lovely novelty gift set for you. There's a coffee <laughs> mug and a uh, and a towel. They have nothing to do with the podcast. We're just going to send you, like, an Ikea coffee mug and a towel. Oh, come on. No, yeah. no, no set of knives? <laughs> come on, guys. Each one will be personally autographed by me. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. That makes it worth it. We're going to strap James. We're going to get James on one of those big tourney wheels, and then you can wear a, a karate outfit and hurl him at him. We could recreate that Icky Thump uh, promo photo with Meg. An- Annie Leibovitz photo of, uh, of Jake, yeah. Jack and Meg. I'm willing to put on that Meg gear. I think we could do it. <laughs> I think this is the only company in the world where I could uh, make a reference to that and two people involved in the conversation get what I'm talking about. <laughs> so this is all very exciting for me. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for coming on by. We brought you here to, to talk a little bit more about space. I have it on good authority that you were at the Icarus celebration. Were you not? Uh, yes, I went to the one at Cass Corridor. That is awesome. It was. It was very awesome. So we we had already gone over in this episode. We we had talked to two of the people who were involved in the launch. They they had done the launch weeks prior. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how did you uh, how did you acquire tickets and how did you how did you get there? Well, I'm, I, I saw the uh, third man announcement about it. Well, actually, no, I backtracked slightly. I saw the teaser about it, which was that short video that they put out about they were going to make history on July 30th and it showed the Star Wars kind of scrolling thing. Right. And I had read that Buzz Aldrin interview that Jack did and where he mentioned playing the record in space. Yeah, yep. that great Buzz Aldrin interview. <laughs> then when he played, I think it was Roseland Ballroom, the poster for one of the nights was uh, a record player in a space capsule with a spaceman. And when I saw yeah, that right. little teaser right. clip, I, right I knew immediately. And I, I, I even posted 
posted on in the vault and, and on Facebook. I think I posted comments about has he finally done it? Did he you know he is he putting a record into space? And, you know everybody else were like oh what are you putting out that we can buy? And I was like no 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 this is not something to buy. No. Jack has put a record into space. Don't you people realize? It's either that or he found a way to get to the moon. He, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, and, and sure enough, when they few days or whatever later they made the actual announcement about the event and that's what it was so there was no way i was not going to go there so you packed up the car or you got the plane tickets or what did you do um i can't road trip i i can't remember for that trip i think for that trip i flew i've driven to cast corridor a couple times for other events oh my god but i think for that one i flew because i couldn't get enough time off for the drive up that's quite a drive that's like what is that like 12 hours something? No, That's crazy. no, from Maryland it's only like nine if you stop for gas a couple of times and oh. food and stuff. So it's oh. it's it's definitely easily <laughs> doable. But they had uh, the two events, the one at Nashville with the golden record that they had sent up. And then mm. the, at Cass Corridor they had the actual Icarus craft. So I, I wanted to go there. I wanted to see the actual Icarus craft. So I, I don't even remember what the sale for tickets was like, but it's... You know, it's just like everything else where you're trying to buy tickets for a Jack White third band thing. You just, you, you've got to be right there. You've got to be logged in. Yeah. And, yep. and refresh, refresh, it. refresh. Yeah, yeah. So, yep. you know, close the office door. Put your phone on do not disturb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, tell your coworkers not to know. Oh, I had to do that for many a Jack White show. Oh, I just yeah. had to just be sitting there by the Ticketmaster window or whatever. Just, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember we did that with the Madison Square Garden show. We had all three of us, me, Paul, and our friend Mike, mm-hmm. were all refreshing the page yeah. for Ticketmaster to get tickets to that show. And I think me and Mike both got through, and then we decided his tickets were better, so we got his instead. But all of our respective wives and girlfriends were supposed to go to that one, mm-hmm. and Mike just took it upon himself to decide, no, they're not coming. <laughs> so so instead of having the, the six of us go and it all be this big thing it was uh, just the three of us and uh i think uh james's wife is still mad about that to this oh, day, to this day. Yeah. she's like i wanted to go to that it was my last chance to see him in concert possibly yeah. uh, anyway anyway that's, so that's that, a whole nother fell is... in love with the show because <laughs> yeah, exactly. i was there too so we can oh wow. we can have a great conversation about that were there any uh special guests that were that were present at the at the party itself yeah kevin carico the gentleman who designed and built the icarus craft was there to speak about it and that was you know that was definitely another big draw I wanted to try to ask him some questions and learn a little bit about it they had the Icarus craft set up in the the front of the shop and and he was up there next to the display for most of the day answering questions for people Mm -hmm. and until the band started and then you know everybody shifted their attention over there and but it was it was just so it was so cool to see what he had built what they'd spent five years on you guys posted a couple of pictures of it yeah so I mean anybody who uh, is interested obviously can go there and see what it looked like, but it was just cool that it was a triangle, three-sided, which yeah. you mentioned in the last ep- the other episode about it, <laughs> which Kevin actually said to answered somebody's question about that. He said that it had to be that uh, shape for torque, for stability, and, and so that it would right. maintain its shape, and apparently a square awesome. or whatever would not have been as sturdy. One of the neatest things, I thought, was the, the three settings on the tone arm. If it hit turbulence, it would lift the tone arm and hold it in place, and then release it when the yeah. turbulence was... Uh, when it passed through the turbulence and everything. So being able to learn those you know, little things like that about the design of it, I thought was really, really cool. That was one of the 
the neatest things about being able to be there. Yeah, it had to be three settings on the damn tone arm, huh? <laughs> it's interesting that because you can actually see it in the in the video, the the tone arm, you know, lifting up. And I, mm-hmm. it's fascinating to me that this guy, who, I mean, I had talked about it in the last episode. You know, his family definitely has a big background in space, but he himself he is mostly technical engineering that's mm-hmm. earth based. Yeah. So it's interesting that he he could design these kinds of things or still overcome these these engineering challenges. I would love to know. I mean, but, supposedly they talk like you guys mentioned in the last episode about this that. You know, they talk to people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and so forth. I mean, I'd love to know what kind of questions they asked them and what kind of tips they got from them. Yeah. You know, the people yeah. that they consulted with. I reached with out and- to Neil and to no avail. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine but, he's a uh, little tricky to get a hold of. Did you wind up listening to Star Talk, Kelly? Did you wind up checking that out? It's very good. Not Neil yet, Neil deGrasse no. Tyson's podcast. It's a great podcast for those who felt like James and I weren't quite corny enough. Like... <laughs> Yeah, but it's lovely, and he's a lovely man. So, um, set the stage. Uh, th- was this your first time at Cast Corridor? Uh, no, actually, I went. I had been there a couple times before that. I went opening weekend. I was not there opening oh, day, cool. but I was there that weekend. The opening, but you had been a couple times. Yeah, I had been a, at least one other time. I think. No, I oh record store day. I went for record store day. Mm. Oh, cool. Between opening day and and Eckros. And I've been a couple times since then. Detroit's a great city. I mean, if if anybody has not made it up there yet to see Cass Corridor and explore Detroit, got to get up there. I feel unfaithful to Nashville at this point because I've been to Third Man Nashville so many times, but once they've opened Detroit, I I don't think I've been back to Nashville since. Wow. Another stole your heart. All we need is a third one, and then we'll have uh, three Third Man locations, you know, Red Blonde and Brunette. He's got to get one out here. Yeah, they'll probably make a California one at some point. Yeah. But it's got to be a location that has some kind of meaning for him. I I would Uh, think. so. Wichita. He's got a thing for Tulsa. So so this is not your first time at Cass Corridor. No. You're arriving, you know how to get there, all that stuff. When mm-hmm. you when you get there, is there is it like a wristband type event? Is it like a line around the block? Like what was what was the get actually getting into yeah, the event you like? It's just like Nashville. Every time there's an event like this, there's a line around the block. You know, the line varies obviously. And Cass Corridor is, is I think like after Icarus, it started getting the same kinds of lines that Nashville has gotten. But the line for Icarus was actually pretty short. I was kind of surprised that it wasn't a bigger, bigger crowd. But still, it was, you know, for a new location and kind of unexpected, strange event. Yeah. It was it was still a, definitely a very good crowd. That's cool. Yeah. So we I got there. You know, some people, I think, had been there from, from pretty early in the morning. I got there, I think, like an hour or two before opening. And then we got in pretty quickly. They brought everybody in past Kevin Carrico and the uh, Icarus Craft, and then you could get into the rest of the store and back near the stage area for when they had the, the music set up. Dave Buick was DJing between sets. And then they... <laughs> nice. And, and he was awesome. He was playing great stuff. And then the bands that played, um, I was not familiar with. One of them was kind of like borderline psychedelic, so it was it was appropriate music, mm-hmm. which definitely made it a lot of fun. But then they cut off the music to to show the, the full video of the, the launch and balloon burst and, and then landing of the craft. So that was... That was definitely a trip. Everybody just kind of hanging out. Jack was up on the uh, balcony above the store through pretty much all of it. So, I mean, he's he's up there on the balcony watching, and we're all down on the floor watching it on the screen and listening to A Glorious Dawn just over and over and over again as, it, <laughs> as, it, as the balloon rose. And then everybody cheered when it burst, and it was just it was exciting. It was like even though we knew it had happened weeks beforehand, it was almost like it was happening live. I mean, every... Yeah. I can't speak for everybody who was there, but 
I know that I and, and my friends that I was with, it, it really kind of felt like it was actually happening while we were watching it. And then when it was over, Jack made a toast for both the cast quarter and the Nashville store and for everybody who was involved and, and so forth and Carl Sagan. So that was really cool. That was another reason I was really glad I had gone to cast quarter since he was there rather than in Nashville. Yeah. That added, that definitely added some excitement. Did you get a chance to say hi or uh, do anything like that? No, or? he came down from the, um, the balcony at one point and waded through the crowd up to the front where the Icarus craft was and one of the local news media did a, a brief interview with him and Ke- Kevin Carrico and then he, he waded back through towards the back of the where the pressing plant and their offices are and signed some autographs and took some pictures on the way and I snapped a bunch of photos while he was up there but uh, I didn't get a chance to you know get in close or anything and then we got to the back he apparently did another interview and then he disappeared into the offices, and I don't think we saw him for the rest of the, the time. But that that experience, even if you did get to meet him, that experience wouldn't uh, top him inviting you on stage to dance uh, <laughs> as he sings. So, for any listeners who who didn't listen, Kelly had a pretty amazing fell in love with the show on a previous episode. Did you get to? Was he watching the video as everybody else was watching? Yeah, for anybody who has not been to Cast Corridor, when you go into the shop, there's like a I don't know if you want to call it a balcony or a mezzanine or what whatever level kind of above the store and the stage where they keep on one end they keep stock of merchandise and on the other side they've got a soundboard set up and the couple of times when i've been there for events that's where jack will frequently end up he'll just hang out up there above the crowd so that he can enjoy the music and everything without obviously without being bothered it's definitely exciting to be there and and know that he's like up there enjoying it as well i haven't had that experience really at any of the nashville things that i've been to where he's been you know right out there so it's it's definitely been neat at cast corridor to have that experience i have to admit i'm a little disappointed that he didn't do a, a disney style entrance of the icarus craft at the end where uh, you know the video ends and then the Icarus crest descends on a on a parachute animatronic style into the middle of the uh, audience and confetti and and uh, liquid <laughs> nitrogen are pouring out. Hey, beautiful yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> I wonder. But, I bet you he had that balcony built for himself. You know, it's like I want to look like Mr. Lincoln. I want to sit up there and I want to view the festivities. I mean, he does own a top hat, I'm sure. So yes, uh, he definitely does. He wore he wore one in the cut like a buffalo video, right? Yeah, I think so. Oh yeah. Unfortunately, there's no back door to this balcony, so John Wilkes Booth can't get into it. <laughs> well, let's say, let's go with fortunately. Um, I said fortunately. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. I thought you were like, and unfortunately, no one's no, killed I the said, bastard. No, I said, and fortunately. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> he, uh, he has a, a chair back there that he upholstered himself called the John Wilkes Booth that he sits on, so it's fine. Uh, the John Wilkes recording booth. Hey. There, there is a couch at Cascorder that he upholstered. And I heard there's one uh, that he did for Sun Studios recently, too. Yeah, too. he redid Sam Phillips' old couch, apparently. He's an, uh, he's an upholsterer. He's an astronomer, essentially. Uh, what what can't this man do? And um, Callie's <laughs> has been great. <laughs> <laughs> He can't grow facial hair. That's like the one thing you can't do. <laughs> no, no, that's no, no, true. I, yeah. That's true. Although he can have Bruce Brand Photoshop it in for him, so it's all good. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> and we have just done all you. over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Callie. And we'll we'll catch you again some other time, possibly, soon. Because time is a flat circle. <laughs> <laughs> Cackling laughter. Thank you, Callie. We love you. We'll see you next week. I mean, some other time. <laughs> Thank you, guys. 
James, holy <laughs> That was a lot of space talking and crip walking. I thought that part of it was pretty controversial. The podcast listeners at home couldn't tell, but James was crip walking through each segment uh, <laughs> the entire time just as a show of dominance. Yeah. He also kept screaming, you can't put baby in a corner. And I edited all those out, but man, James, you got to stop screaming, you can't Look, put you baby, can't in, put a baby corner. in a corner. Oh, baby's in the corner. You can't put baby in the corner. The baby's in there. Got to get, get him the out. Baby's out of the corner. Get him out of the corner. I've never seen that movie. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Is um, there a literal baby in a corner? <laughs> We got some shout outs we want to give here and there's many of them here. So I'm just going to, I'm going to zip through them real fast. We've got new listeners have been tweeting about the show, Facebooking about the show. We've got Ann Hill. Thank you, Ann. We've got Jonathan Powell. Thank you, Jonathan. We've got Norma Ancheta. Thank you, Norma. We've got Celeste Johansson Palmero. Thank you, Celeste. We have Gina Mape, who's a, who's like a V away from being (laughs) like somebody I don't necessarily want to know. And then Neko Sankar or at Neko Sankar 55 on Twitter. We have Tan tan or tin tin depending on what country you hail from quarantino which i think is not their real name but that's at lyle hopwood uh, aside from that we have our day in day out people that we we like to talk to and chat with we got kate mccoy the bones of the operation my oh me we got me oh my we've got jeremy riles keeping us on those rails i see you over there eileen corsano we've got andre ice cold lime man we've got adrian the punk rock queen king and we've got Kelly Durgar, third person this week and every week in spirit. We've got Rain Prosper, red, red rain everywhere. We've got Amy Hart, the heart of the operation. We've got Eric Andrew Dodson over here, and <laughs> we got LOL 2.0 as well as S.A. Franco. What does that mean? We can't forget about the one, the only, David Poe. Po 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 po. Our most together one yet. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us, like those fine listeners did, you go to Facebook.com/slash Third Men. You could visit us at Third Mencast on Twitter. You could visit our Tumblr, ThirdMenPodcast.tumblr.com. You could go to our WordPress page, TheThirdMen.wordpress.com. You could shoot us an email, ThirdMenPodcast at gmail.com. You could visit our Spreaker. That's our iHeartRadio landing page that's spreaker.com s-p-r-e-a-k-e-r and search the third men you could also check us out on youtube and please rate review and subscribe on itunes yes please uh, feel free if you have any questions or facts you'd like us to smell or any breaking downs that we need to stop doing feel free to email us and as always we'd also like to thank sam Kubert and tom valenti for helping with our theme song we're the third men and Susanna roundtree for the beautiful wonderful professional intros and outros of our program oh and also all our best to Mackenzie mackinich and the dead leaves hope that show went well very excited to have interviewed you for the co- covering the white stripes episode and yeah we hope everyone checked that out and if you couldn't be there live in seattle to i hope you uh checked out their facebook page and you know saw all the cool stuff they're doing so thanks again to them and until next week james I'm going to be looking for a home. And Paul, until next week, from hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's <laughs> sake. Right. All I right. I my last breath at All thee. right. I'll be looking for a home buried alive. Buried alive. <laughs> James buried will be on the Reliant. See you next time. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.
For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. Check. We can be funny, right? <laughs> <laughs> Why start now? I shall leave you as you left me. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. Where should I put it? Uh, you could put it. Wherever your heart desires, you're a rich man now. You have lots of stuff, but little British child, I just want you to know. Are you listening? Are you listening, tiny child? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. It's Christmas oh, Day. <laughs> I thought maybe you were gonna go with like uh, Kirk's soliloquy before they fire Spock into the thing because of your very funny title to this episode, which I've uh, been thinking about a lot since you told me. <laughs> Volume three might be uh, Space Three: The Search for Caraco. <laughs> I searched for Sputnik. Mm, that wasn't good. Nope. That wasn't a winner. Two stars. <laughs> Tabernacle. Hey, you're back. That sounds better. We can see you again. We were getting a little worried because we couldn't hear you, but we could hear some commotion that sounded a little like you might be in the Planet of the Apes. I think it's frozen. Yep. yep. Might come back. Not sure. Right, right. Oh. Oh, it's reloading. Reloading. I'm just dropping. Oh. Oh. Nope. 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 Okay. Name of civilization. Put a stop to this. However, we are not without compassion. Oh, oh, oh. maybe. See, see him. him. Okay. You're, oh. back. You're, You're back. back. You're back. I can't, I can't see, you, see you, but I can, I can hear, hear you. you. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh. Gone. Subspace. Is everybody here? Oh. James, let's all hang up. We're all gonna hang up. Hang, hang it up. Hang it up. We lost the picture. Alright, right, are, are we back? back? There you are. Okay. Hang up. We're, We're back. back. We made, made it. it. We did it. Call James. Oh. <laughs> Oh, great. Uh, then uh, let me add Paul into the call. Hold on one second. I'm watching James right now as he's trying to tie these calls together. And uh, he looks very focused. 
His hair is perfect. <laughs> hey. Hey, Alright, I'm gonna merge the calls. Okay. Okay. Oh. Okay. oh, phone died. Whoever finds this, please get it to Starfleet Command. My phone died. Okay. Well, that sucks. I'm James's brother, a co-host of the show. His phone died, so it dropped the call. Sorry about that. No problem. Okay. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and merge the calls now. All right. All right. It's calling it. Okay. I did it. You there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. I'm gonna, right. Oh, oh well, I, dude, dude, I can't, I can't merge, merge it if you're, if you're on FaceTime audio. audio. I'm on FaceTime audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How am I on FaceTime audio? Yeah, I can't. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I'm merging the calls. Are you there? We're, there? We're losing you, David. I'm sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm glad we're taking this. <laughs> uh, um, what I'm trying to say is, Callie, with your facts so right, won't you take our podcast tonight? We did it! Yay! Uh, we did it. Great. We did it. Frontier. Which some may say is the final frontier, uh, but I don't know about that.